Hello and welcome. Today is November 7th, and you are listening to Ascension Run, a podcast about roguelike games and strategy. My name is Tone, and I will be your host. You may know me from the Tonehack YouTube and Twitch channels. And today, I will be joined by Alexi Peppers and Travis Moy, and we'll be discussing Roguelike Celebration 2021, an online roguelike conference that was held on October 16th and 17th. And I couldn't imagine having um, better people here to discuss it with us today. Um, you guys were very involved in the organization process and the event. Um, so to start, uh, could you guys tell us about your background and your involvement with the conference? Uh, Alexi, would you like to start? Sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm Alexi, she, her, and I am a professional game developer, which is actually not something that's true necessarily of a lot of the volunteers, which is like a common misconception. Um, I'm a game designer at a AAA studio. And my background with Roguelike Celebration, I actually was a speaker in the first year in 2016, which was while I was still in university. I spoke about um, making NetHack more accessible for visually impaired players. And it was a huge moment in my life and career to get to meet uh, other roguelike developers. I had a background in it from my mom teaching me NetHack as a kid, but I'd never really known anyone else who played it. And so I went back every year I could afford to. I'm from Canada, so it was always a bit tricky. Uh, so I was there every year except 2017. And then in 2019, I gave this talk on ProcGen practitioners that went really well. It was the first talk of the conference, and I felt like I had kind of hit a point of Having gotten so much out of the conference, I wanted to start giving back. And that was the year also that Noah was thinking about stepping back. So I got involved with volunteering and mostly I do speaker outreach and speaker mentorship because of kind of my background in giving talks. So, and I'm also the main MC of Roguelike Celebration since we've been digital. So I was a volunteer last year and this year. And yeah, it's been a really awesome time. Yeah, I feel like um, due to your role as MC, a lot of people might see you as the face of a uh, roguelike celebration at um, this year. Yeah, which is a, a kind of a fun one, and and I do a lot of the talking to the speakers. But yes, I am I am a face, but there's lots of people who make it actually happen behind the scenes, like Travis. <laughs> right. Uh, hi, I'm Travis Moy. He him. Uh, mostly, uh, I joined actually same time as Lexi when Noah said that he wanted to uh, put out a call for volunteers. Um, and it's all been online since then. So that's been interesting. Um, I do administrative work, internal tracking uh, stuff. And also um, I'm one of the developers on the online MUD social space program that we use to host it online. Um, if you're not familiar, we are not a Zoom-based conference. We have built our own little kind of MMO, kind of MUD, kind of chat program that uh, we use to host it online since we'd, uh, we'd seen how some of the online conferences work and felt that it's it would be more fun to have our own, you know, kind of semi-game. Um, so that's a lot of what I do on the team right now although going forward we might uh see about what different things we have to do yeah it's really an incredible experience you guys have put together um with that mud yeah yeah um and in my normal life i'm just like a software developer very transferable it turns out (laughs) very cool well we'll definitely be talking more about that mud um in a moment here i think but um i guess the the big question first is 
can you guys explain what roguelike celebration is for people who um, haven't heard of it or haven't attended or seen any of the talks before? Yeah, it's funny. I made a note here that that's it's a trickier question than you might think. <laughs> uh, I think to borrow the the blurb from our website that we use, Roguelike Celebrations, a community generated weekend of talks, games, and conversations about roguelikes and related topics, including procedural generation and game design. And it's explicitly for fans, players, developers, scholars, and everyone else, which kind of sets it apart from a more professional or even academic conference. Like I think the 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 phrasing celebration is very purposeful in that we want it to be a very equal meeting of peers and friends and we don't really want it to be something that's so much like for professional networking or about just like only inviting the latest and greatest in successful roguelikes to speak. Uh, we try and keep a broad audience and a broad set of speakers. So it's interesting. Part of what makes it difficult is that roguelike itself is a somewhat contentious genre definition. And we also enjoy including a lot of other broader procedural content. So it's a discussion every year of how to best explain who we are, but that's kind of the gist of it. It's definitely a broad um, categorization there. Um, and yeah, I think that framing um, really se separates it from something like um, the Roguelike Developers Conference, which just by the naming makes it seem you know, like tailored for developers to attend. But yeah, the roguelike celebration is like everyone should get involved. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of, you know, developers in there, but there's a lot of just players or fans or even just people watching the, you know, the the genre from outside. Um, I think that's, that's really cool. And um, it's something that's always a lot of fun to see. So Travis had mentioned the the mud that you guys have created for this. Um, it's the the digital space that you attend here as you transitioned from the in-person events to the um, live online events. And that is a really cool space. So I don't know if you guys can explain that and how that works a bit. Sure. It's a browser-based program that it's basically a website you go to, uh, you sign up with a handle and such. And it's very, if you're familiar with what a mud is, which is like a multi-user dungeon. It's one of those very old-timey uh, chat games, kind of, where you type things in and uh, you play the game through the uh, command, typing things in. Um, so basically, it's a it's a semi-game with a world model. You There's, like, rooms that you can go into... So we have things like the theater, and if you go into the theater, they'll be broadcasting the talks. And we have also rooms for breakout rooms, where you go into the breakout rooms after the talks, and you can uh, chat with the people who, the speakers who just did the talks. Uh, and there's also a bunch of secrets in there to, uh, to explore and such. So uh, we also have text chat and video chat for, you know, letting people talk to each other. So it's basically, like I said, it's a kind of like a text-based MMO that only really exists for the duration of the weekend, uh, tailored for our purposes. Yeah, which is important because I think some of the history of it, and it's funny at this point, people have come to Roguelike Celebration for two years and never been to the physical event. So for people who might not have gone, it used to be, you know, that sounds like it'll be that way forever, but it was it was hosted in San Francisco um, for most of the former years. It was at the GitHub offices. It was, I think, in the Eventbrite office in the first year. But 
uh, GitHub offices. And so there was like a large theater kind of space where we had the talks and the stage and there was a kitchen and there were a few places that we had games set up for people to play. And a lot of people would travel from kind of out of town to attend. And also, uh, largely, it was Britta, one of the other volunteers who did a lot of lovely work putting out uh, like NetHack scrolls and making little altars. And we had a lot of these large printouts of ASCII characters. So there were like black puddings by the water fountains and things like that. So it was also a very playful space, which was something that I was really fond of. There's also a great roguelike celebration tradition where at the end of the year, uh, they didn't want to store all of these printouts. And so they would just be like, all right, everybody grab what you like. <laughs> so <laughs> so I've, every year I've accumulated, like, you know, I'll have like a full moon tonight uh, banner, like over one of my windows. And I had a like, are you sure you want to leave? Yes, no, over my door in my apartment. <laughs> and it was that kind of feeling that it wasn't just about the talks. It was about the place and the people that made it so in 2020 when we were considering what to do digitally it didn't feel right to just do it as um you know a broadcast or as zoom rooms which is where the idea came from and actually the first year 2020 the space of the social space was modeled explicitly after that github space so we had rooms that were analogous to the github layout and then some extra secrets to find which this year we actually revamped and and did more our own fantastical space which is what i did a bit more work on was that kind of visual side of it on the front because we wanted to accommodate people who weren't necessarily nostalgic for the github offices and try and create a sense of a place for people to come back to which is also why like we don't run it outside of the roguelike celebration weekend because we do things like the reason why you can't back scroll through all the chat log is partly because we want to preserve this feeling of place and that when you wander into a room like you're wandering into a conversation in a way that's more similar to what it's like in a physical place so there's a lot of interesting design choices that have gone into trying to make a digital space that conveys that feeling of community and and kind of specialness that that weekend always had for us that's really cool. Hearing your description of how the in-person events went, um, I was someone who never got the opportunity to go to one of the in-person events, but that explains so much about how the um, the online space has been designed. Um, and that, that's really cool hearing that backstory for that. And the, the online space, it, it seems like an amazing level of care has got into it. Um, there's just like so many like little details and touches that um, you could spend a lot of time just going from room to room and like seeing all this um and as i think travis mentioned earlier there's even like secrets um hidden in there um there was like a a puzzle um this year uh that people were like solving and trying to figure out and and find like more information on and stuff like that so um there's a little bit of something for everyone in there i'm glad to hear that because that's definitely what we we try to do and we try to think hard about things like okay we want to have big spaces where people can have large conversations but we also want to have like quieter rooms that when writing the description for them we try and write it in a way that it gets across the feeling of like yeah this is a place that's like chill so in this year we had like this robot fabrication lab and you could just click on a button and get little tracery generated descriptions of robots and it was a very calming place and it was very satisfying to see like i visited at one point and there was just one person in there by themselves and i was like hey how's it going and they're like oh it's good i'm just like taking a little break which is yeah it, it's 
good and that's what we think about we kind of break out what we want different rooms to accomplish to a degree and yeah I'm glad that the love comes through because I think that you know being volunteers all of us are part of this because we love it so much and especially at this point a lot of people like Travis and myself are volunteers that you know attended the conference for years and then became volunteers so we already loved it and it meant so much to me always coming to that social space and seeing all these little touches of these little scrolls and things and knowing that I was with this community of people who love this game, you know, or set of games that often, even even as like a game developer, many other game developers have never played NetHack. So that was just so special to me that I really wanted to keep that. And so, yeah, we put a lot of effort. And it, it's a lot of fun. Like my partner, Kawa, who's also a volunteer, we spent a lot of time just coming up with those little little fun things and this concept too that I think M Laserwalker, who did a lot of the majority of the kind of initial setup of the social space talked about this idea of fidget interactions, which is also the nice thing of there's a lot of stuff in the space that you can kind of click on just to get a little bit of information, like a poster you can click on and you can read some text or a potion that you could drink and it'll change an emoji in front of your name. And that was also important just to make it a space that you felt like you were engaging with instead of just a screen. Yeah, like the, you can um, in the space, like pick up items and it'll, you know, show that you're holding something if you're carrying like a, a bottle of water or like a drink or something. Um, and yeah, people were drinking those potions and getting like the emojis or changing their the, the colors of their names and like all this personalization um, and stuff just to, to make you express yourself the the way you want. And also so. Um, it's not just like a wall of like, you know, identically like, you know, just gray text names or something in the space. Um, it's just like a lot of color and it's very festive. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it's a very fun design problem to figure out how to allow user customization when all you have is a text name. <laughs> mm-hmm. It relates to a lot of uh, design problems that real roguelike developers deal with. <laughs> yeah, which is part of like, I feel like MUDs are at least cousins to roguelikes. Uh, and so I think that it just felt right to keep it at this level of representation. But yeah, like this was the year that we broke out um, fonts. That was the big reward if you finished the riddle puzzle was that you could change the font of your your username, which like I'm scared if we wanted to add more I don't know what else we could do because it was we made a list of like what are the things that we can actually change about a username and not impact legibility and at this point we're doing all of them so <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun one I saw a lot of people having fun with um different fonts and their names and such but yeah even just like the the design of the uh individual rooms is really cool and really models this um in person conference experience really well because you can just be going from a room to a room and then like bump into someone and maybe you'll say like oh hey i you know knew you from this or you start like a little conversation it's just natural and then maybe you'll be on your way um, to another space um, each room had voice and video chat set up as well so you could um, walk into a room and there might be people talking in like video chat and you can just like overhear them and you can join in if you wanted to um, and I just thought that was really cool how it really models that um, experience of, you know, walking from room to room in a real conference, bumping into something, overhearing conversation and uh, wanting to take part in that. And um, like you said, someone needed to like go to another room just to take a break. <laughs> like that just feels so authentic. Yeah. And you can thank a lot of Travis's hard work for uh, some of the audio and video chat working. That was the big ad this year. 
that we didn't have last year was only text chat. So that was a lot of work. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad the community is patient with us when it's not always working perfectly. Our video chat kind of turned itself off at the end. But uh, no, I think the video chat worked really, really um, well in... Because the main problem we had when it was text only in terms of... Um, social interaction is you don't know whether the other person is at the keyboard, right? You, because we don't have the, uh, you know, infinite scroll back, you go into a room, you don't necessarily know if the person is active, and it takes a while for people to type their messages. Um, so I think less people use the video chat than um, I think we might have expected, but it also provides immediate feedback on like you go into a room and somebody's talking you already know that they're there and you're not they're not afk so i think that was really that was really uh an improvement there and also i think breakout rooms worked really well with video chat yeah which was another new thing this year that we wanted a better way to replicate the feeling you got at the conference which yeah a lot of this is based on like taking things we liked from both physical roguelike celebration and other conferences we've attended and then like trying to avoid things that we don't like about other digital conferences and yeah it, it was always that great thing if you would watch someone give a talk and really enjoy it and then bump into them at the coffee line or you know go look for them in the next break so that you could ask some extra questions that there wasn't time for or just like weren't right to get into in like the public q a and that was something where last year we kind of encouraged like hey you know if the speaker's around in the space, you can ask them some questions, but you don't know where they are and like if they're active or not, like Travis mentioned. So this year it was kind of modeled after um, GDC has kind of explicit speaker breakouts after talks where you know a specific place people are going sometimes. And so we tried that as a way to make sure that if speakers were interested and had the time, there was a definite room you could go to. And it, we definitely need to try and improve on like the degree to which we explain <laughs> which rooms you go to and when. But uh, once it worked, it was a really cool way to, yeah, like, and it was interesting how different people could choose to communicate in a way most comfortable to them. So I saw cases where the speaker was the only person on video chat and everyone else was asking questions in text. I saw cases where, you know, everyone there was in, uh, text chat only, which is something I really like of offering different types of communication. We tried hard to make sure that even if someone is in voice chat or in audio or in video chat, text doesn't become a backup. It, there's still a way to kind of go back and forth. So we really want to try and make sure that different people who are comfortable or, or prefer different ways of communicating can do so. And yeah, the speaker breaker rooms were, I think, a huge success that we'll do again. Yeah, I like the breakout sessions a lot. It was cool to just, if you wanted to get a little more information or had like an extra question that um, if either you didn't post um, during the their talk or they didn't get to it, you were able to just like, you know, interact a little more. And um, you had like a, you know, a smaller group, a little bit more of an intimate session um, to talk about these these talks and with the people who hosted them. Yeah, it's funny because it's kind of like, you know, Travis mentioned how we may or may not have expected the amount of video chat usage that we got something funny about roguelike celebration at least to me from a design perspective is that we only get one chance a year basically to try something <laughs> and try and figure out if it worked or not so it's it's interesting because you know we we don't get to kind of 
try ideas and get lots of feedback over and over again. You know, last year we managed a little preview event that helped us detect some things where really after that preview event, it was like, okay, some things that people are doing don't match at all what we thought. Or, you know, we had some retrospective notes from last year that we were able to act on of like, okay, you know, text chat can be hard to read when everything is just text of the same color. So let's add like alternating color blocks. And a lot of the room design, which is one of the things that I do work on, is tricky because I, you know, we try and design rooms to encourage certain types of if I sound player behavior, it sounds way too much like <laughs> doing game design work. Audience enjoyment, socializing. But, you know, does it work or does it not work? We get one weekend to see, and then we try and figure out everything we can while also running the event. <laughs> and then we'll have a year to overthink what to do next. So it, it's an interesting problem space, and I'm glad with what we've done with it. And I'm also, like, the community is wonderful. Like, we often, every year we've had at least one case of having to hot patch the social space live during the weekend. And everyone's always very accepting. And like Travis mentioned, we uh, lost video chat completely during the last like hour or two of this year. And people are just understanding. I think roguelikes prime people to be accepting of uh, <laughs> temperamental software, but still we really appreciate it. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And then you guys have the, the main theater, uh, room and if if you go into there it just has the you know the the conference stream basically going and you can get whatever talk is actively going on there and then um there was well over 100 people on there every time that i went in there i believe and you know everyone's just excited and talking and asking questions and discussing what the people were talking about uh, which is a really cool experience that's even something that you don't really get in a um, a live event where you know you can't talk with the whole room while the, the the talk is going on, you might be able to whisper to someone you're sitting next to. Um, so it's pretty cool to have like a a full chat with everyone involved like during those talks too. Yeah, I think that helps too with the propagation of in conference memes <laughs> like Juice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the uh, people are definitely excited about Juice this year. <laughs> yeah, the unexpected theme of 2021 was Juice. Yeah, I think every year it seems like one of the early talks kind of just, you know, picks up steam and, and people get excited about it and end up just talking about it one manner or another through the rest of the conference. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of what happened where my talk was the first talk of 2019. And it was about categorizing ways you work with ProcGen and people after me folded that into their talks and we actually got like badge stickers printed somehow. I don't know how they got that done so fast. Um <laughs> Which, yeah, it was a level of like fun and um, just awesome feeling as a speaker that that was when I was like, all right, I've peaked. I have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, that really is quite an accomplishment um, that everyone was choosing their, you know, their D&D &D class archetype um, for their for the conference or for their, you know, for their personal style. And that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was good. And, it, and that was when I was like, all right, I've done. <laughs> I've had my, my time in the, the sun here. I need to see what I can do with others, which is the fun thing. Like, and that's where I do a lot of speaker outreach. And one of the really great things about uh, it being digital, because there's downsides, you know, and, and we miss the physical conference and some people will just never, you know, the, the digital isn't for them, which is fine. But as someone who is like not an American, it was difficult to justify going to roguelike celebration. I did it anyway, but it was hard. And I have really cared a lot about kind of geographic representation and kind of marginalization where we already care a lot about 
you know, taking on a diverse set of speakers from a lot of other axes. But the geographic one is great. And this year, you know, we had people from Europe, we have people from, I think, South America, and just all over the place who've never been able to come before to speak or to attend. And so that's something that's really wonderful to me is that we get such a broad audience and we give more people a chance to have those moments than they might have otherwise. Yeah, I think that that's the biggest benefit of having the the event online is that more people can, you know, actively participate and be involved um, and be there. Um, it's a lot harder to do when it's an in-person event. I'm always impressed and kind of horrified when people will say in the chat, like, haha, yeah, it's 4 a.m. here. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> go to bed. But also, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, people are enthusiastic and excited. It's so great to see. I guess we'll uh, move on. And do you guys have any plans for next year for the event? That's the big question. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right now we're thinking about it, but we don't have any solid plans since a year's a long time. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, like we were just talking about, there's pros and cons. Like, I think that it's safe to say that there is a lot of interest and desire to do um, physical events again. There's also a lot of desire to integrate digital events going forward, even when they're not, you know, the only way. So we are trying hard to think about how to approach those while also being a small team of volunteers. So we'll see. Yeah, it definitely feels like a tough problem, um, especially with how successful these online events have, have been. Um, just finding the the medium between those two. Yeah, it's a tough one. And we'll we'll see. It's it it is a funny thing like you know we were adapting to circumstances in 2020 and now a lot has changed in 2 years. We're going to figure it out. I I feel confident that we'll make something work cuz I think that I'm I'm really happy with what we managed to do in 2020, so you know, move that energy forward and see what happens. Awesome. Well, I can't wait. You guys wanted to touch on the volunteering process um and you know how cuz everyone on the team are, are volunteers and um, that's really how this thing happens. So um, do you want to let people know what the process is like and how people can get involved if they would like to? Send us an email. We don't really have, we don't really have a process. It's just, uh, I think uh, the year I joined and last year, we just sent out some emails saying, Hey, we're looking for volunteers. If you enjoyed this, you know, email us and we got a few people doing that and that's how we have new volunteers yeah it's very informal so like contact at roguelike.club is the main email to reach us at and it really is like some people come on and only do kind of one thing like they only do this steam feature sale which we did this year for the first time and i think was really cool um and then some people get more involved and do a bunch of things like there's lots of different tasks and People can kind of decide how much they're able to take on, what they're interested in. Um, it is funny, you know, like Travis mentioned, doing more administrative stuff. And there's so much of that. <laughs> a lot of it is just like, there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done to make a conference happen. And there's a lot of just information to keep track of. So a lot of the time, just having extra hands is helpful to just make sure everything is still moving smoothly. But yeah, it, it's a pretty loose thing we don't ask people to you know sign their souls over or anything like that and it tends to be kind of a weekly check-in as we head into the conference and something more uh sporadic during the off season 
So yeah, I encourage like anyone who enjoys the conference and thinks that like maybe it'd be cool to see behind the scenes or maybe it would just be fun to be one of the people helping make the social place cool or, you know, stuff like that. Just get in touch and you can try it and you can always change your mind if you don't like it. That's fine too. But yeah, it, it it's fun. I found it really um, a good experience. I really liked, especially... The conference makes a lot of people really happy <laughs> and creates a lot of sharing of ideas and just having a chance to be a part of that is a pretty wonderful thing. Yeah, I've also generally enjoyed my uh, conference running time. Um, I basically, if you have any interest at all, we could use we could always use more people. Yeah, it seems like you guys have a lot of fun through all the work too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the problems we're solving are often fun ones. Like, you know, how do we make the social space engaging? It's mostly like, you know, putting cool stuff in it. There's there's a lot of fun work. And I, you know, it, there can be small tasks and big tasks and, you know, getting to do stuff like coordinate the shirt designs. Like, that's fun. You get cool stuff out of it. Speaking of that, the shirts this year were awesome. Actually, I like the shirts all the years that I've seen, but um, I, I I always am impressed by the the merch that you guys put out. So the, the shirts and the, the mouse pad was really cool this year as well. That's good. We'll have to tell Sam, one of our other volunteers, who is kind of the, the go-to guy on the mouse pads, which I also love. I have one on my desk now, and I think they're really cool. I love the swag. I have so many of the socks. <laughs> my sock <laughs> collection is like 50% roguelike socks. So yeah, and the shirts are wonderful. I mean, the community is so talented. It's always a chance for us to find someone in the community who already does awesome stuff and just kind of throw them a fair amount of money to design us an awesome shirt. It's a great relationship. Yeah. And I mean, if you're a, you know, a fan of roguelikes, it can be hard to express that in the way that you can with like other fandoms and such. Um, there's just not a lot of, um, you know, memorabilia or souvenirs or that kind of things around. So that's what I thought was really cool about um, some of that stuff. And like that mouse pad, I'm, I'm probably going to like hang up on a wall or something. It was <laughs> that cool. I think. <laughs> But yeah, for anyone who wants to volunteer, I'll definitely include a link for that email address for contact um, in the, the show notes. So everyone should be able to find that. And um, if you guys don't have anything else on the, the conference itself, um, we can talk about some of the talks this year. Yeah, I think that would be good. Since we were just uh, referencing it, I'm just going to bring up um, one that I had picked out, which is Juice Your Turns by Jeremiah Reed. This talk was really about adding juice to your roguelike games. Um, juice is like really an encompassment of like all the things that kind of make a game satisfying to interact with. They're often audio or visual feedback to the player, um, like their inputs and things in the game. Um, so they can be things like, you know, if you're playing NetHack and bumping to attack, like nothing's really going on. The message log just increments, but um, this is adding like, you know, damage pop-ups or like maybe like noise or like a little bit of animation or stuff like that. Um, it just kind of makes the games like a lot more satisfying to play a lot of the times. And that's something that can be lacking from a lot of roguelike games for one reason or another. It's not anything that's necessarily expected from games, but um, if done well, it really fits into games, I think, and can really improve them. Um, so I thought that was a pretty good topic. And he actually had a like live demonstration of all of these different ways um, you can incorporate these into a, a game. And that was like a really cool way to express that and show it to the audience. And he like even went overboard with some of it, which was fun to do. 
Um, it got a little wild. <laughs> um, but another reason I wanted to pick this one out was because, um, like you had mentioned, like people are just talking about juice for the rest of the weekend. I, I think this talk <laughs> and those um, live demonstrations like really got people excited. Um, and it's stuck in people's uh, minds, just the the way it was presented. And that was a lot of fun. And people were just screaming juice like <laughs> all weekend or since it's such a relevant topic, um, whenever another talk like had something that broached on the the subject of juice, like people were just like, you know, screaming for it and stuff. So I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I love that talk. And I think like you mentioned, I think it was great that it's always awesome. Like you, you can do great stuff with just a standard slide deck, but it's really great when people do like live demonstrations and stuff. And so his technique of kind of showing you how all of these things added to the experience was great. And I was also so excited. Like, you know, we ended up with two talks on juice explicitly. We had this one and then also Chris McCormick gave a more, um, how do you actually approach this talk about building juicy minimal roguelikes in the browser, which I was just really excited because I think that, yeah, roguelikes are not often juicy games, but I think they could be. And I mean, I think Cud sometimes has improved that a little bit. And I've always found that really fun. So yeah, it, it was so cool. And I think it's something that I could see people really benefiting from. One of the criteria we sometimes keep in mind when we're trying to pick out of all the submissions what talks to accept is this, you know, we'd like to have some talks where someone can watch it and go home that night and potentially like if they felt like it sit down and do something right then with what their game is what their project is you know be able to act on it immediately which this i felt like was a great example of like the way that he showed everything playing out it really got the idea across in a way that you could go home and and immediately if you're making a game say like okay how can i add some juice to this and i think that's always a great thing i love leaving roguelike celebration filled with all these ideas of what i want to be doing yeah i think that live demonstration really made the idea of implementing juice into your own game um much more approachable i'm um, just big seeing it there and it's like no excuses like you can do this like right now it's it's like kind of the simple um, i thought it was really cool and, and yeah the juicier turns and then building juicy minimal roguelikes in the browser are a really great pairing if you're interested in that topic Definitely enjoyed that he did also uh, have, you know, I, he uh, introduced a bunch of different techniques on how to make a game juicy, and he's like, let's just throw everything in, and it was awful. <laughs> so, like, definitely, uh, you know, keep it, like, as a, uh, as a reminder to keep in mind that you can't just throw in every effect that was very effective. Yeah, that was fun and an important lesson as well to to demonstrate too. So that was that was really cool because you you often don't see a game that I guess there are examples, but like no games usually don't like go too hard. Like a lot of people realize when they're going too far, uh, but to see like the demonstration like he had where it was just kind of wild, colors were changing, like things were like bouncing around, and um, it was probably unplayable. Yeah. <laughs> Just too much juice. It reminded me of like the hardest super hexagon levels where everything starts really just like flashing and moving and you're like, oh man, I'm in some kind of trance state. Like, I don't know if this is good or not, but it's happening. <laughs> I also think juice is generally a thing that a lot of roguelikes, which are sometimes like visuals, minimal, um, there's a spectrum there and like roguelikes tend to be on the lower side of it. But some some games like I this is not strictly roguelike trad roguelike, but like Hades generally has 
a lot of good feel to it. Yeah, it's a juicy game. So there's like a yeah, there's a there's a large range in the roguelike if you count Hades as a roguelike genre there. Yeah, and, and Hades really does just feel fantastic to play, and it's a lot of those same techniques um, that are going into it. Just you know, getting that feedback as a player when you're you're making your inputs and playing the game, it just flows so naturally, and you can really get that experience with like a an ASCII roguelike, maybe not one in like a terminal, but um, a very like simpler game um, if you apply a lot of those same principles. Yeah, I thought it was smart that he used like ASCII, you know, depictions to you know, work through his demonstration because yeah, I would have maybe even said beforehand that like, yeah, there's probably limits to how juicy you could make an ASCII roguelike, but nope, <laughs> you can do a lot with it, which uh, was really cool. Maybe not directly like in curses, but yeah, it was an interesting case in point that I, I feel like, yeah, if he'd given a talk where he talked about the concepts that he did, but without the demonstration, I could see people still being skeptical of like, yeah, but does that really apply to ASCII? But yeah, you can't deny it when he's showing you, you know, right in front of you what it would look like and how it would feel. Yeah, no, that looked like a game that I would play like 100 um, percent once he, you know, had the basics and some of the, you know, the more essential juice elements. Um, it, it it was a really good demonstration. Yeah, and I think in terms of like conference energy, it was a nice kind of pairing because so you know i'm not sure if we'll get fully into it but the very first talk of the weekend was was michael brogue and then jeremiah reads juice your turns talk was second and it was a nice pairing because michael brogue i think like had possibly never done like public speaking at any kind of conference or anything before so it was much more this vibe of you know someone who's just unbelievably brilliant coming and talking in a like you know more nervous and just straightforward way like you know black and white text slides about concepts that blow your mind like everything he was saying was just this great wisdom but it's not like in your face like it's not full of memes and you know all of that like it was a you sit there and receive wisdom <laughs> from someone extremely intelligent and extremely you know capable in this field and then this pairing of someone who is like really over the top making something visually fun and engaging in that way and is kind of still getting across really smart ideas but just kind of the approaches were very different of someone who seemed to have like a lot of public speaking experience or at least like you know a showman and someone who's more not used to that but is still like getting across these wonderful points like I think that that was such a interesting pairing to start the conference off with which is part of what I really like of like you know we want we we purposefully try to make sure that we have speakers with different levels of speaking experience or game experience or things like that, because we want to make it clear that like, if you have interesting ideas, you can come talk. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have some kind of crazy live demo, but also if that's what you find fun, then like, heck yeah, we love it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, that was a great way to start the conference. I thought Michael's talk was incredible. Um, I could have listened to him talk for hours about, um, what he was talking about, he just broke things down to such like a, a fundamental um, level when he was talking about just, you know, things you take for granted when you're playing or designing a game um, and then how he related to them to his games and stuff. I thought that was really good. Highly recommended. Yeah, the vibe there was more like you're like, you know, sitting in the auditorium listening to Plato, like invent philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> 
100%. Yeah. I was just like, I'm just going to sit here and listen. Uh, this guy really knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And then Jeremiah's was more like this showman of just this like crazy circus of increasingly wild, juicy techniques. Yeah. I, I felt um, Jeremiah's talk just kind of like increasing to like a crescendo, probably about when um, <laughs> when the it was overjuiced in that example. It was a lot of fun. Do you guys have any uh, talks you wanted to to bring up? Okay, I suppose. Um, I really like the community-driven roguelike development by Evan Devenham. Um, so he's the uh, developer and maintainer of uh, Shuttered Pixel Dungeon, which is interesting because um, essentially all of our talks previous have been... Uh, you know, PC slash online stuff. Um, Shadow Pixel Dungeon is mobile. And mobile is actually huge. Like, in terms of how many people play games, if you're ignoring mobile, it's... Like, the mobile is a huge part of the market. And this sounds like I am a business person now, but, like, actually, I play a lot of mobile games. Um, and... There's a huge range in quality from, like, terrible to actually great. So I think it's sort of an unrepresented area. Um, and Shattered Pixel Dungeon is quite interesting. He actually... So uh, about a third of the talk is a history of describing Shattered Pixel Dungeon and uh, how he basically forked it from a open-source uh, Pixel Dungeon game. Um and how he updates it. The middle half of the talk was about taking feedback from the community and how you should always like listen to the community in terms of if something's coming up, like this is something you should handle, but the specific things the community says might not 100% be correct. Uh, and he made a good points about... Uh, being able to collect your own metrics to actually have data as opposed to hearsay and like how to tactfully deal with a community that might be convinced something is overpowered when like statistically it doesn't seem like that. Um, and then he also talked about some monetization. Um, he had a wrap up section at the end and there were some questions. So um, all of that, I think the, the most interesting part was, to me, the monetization part, because that's something people do not, one, like, traditional right likes tend to be less monetized, either intentionally or unintentionally, but, like, you don't pay money for Door Fortress. You, you could, you can, but, like, that's not a huge deal of one of the makers of Door Fortress are going in for, right? Like, Door Fortress is not quite as much an industry game. Um, so, especially hearing how monetization works with the mobile market for Shadow Pixel Dungeon was interesting, I think. Um, and I guess that 
is a weird, it's a weird thing to be super interested about, but it's interesting because it's not talked about a lot. I think a lot of people who are like, I'm going to make a roguelike, go into it with like, yeah, maybe it won't be a revenue generating project or like, you know, this is going to be mostly for me because I enjoy roguelikes. But hearing how somebody does it is cool. Yeah, and I think that it is, like, I, I don't think it's even just about, you know, business or players. Like, I think something that comes up in just, like, game design and game development as a field is how often mobile games are treated as not real games in a way that, you know, design lessons from them and things like that don't carry over. Which, yeah, it's it's bullshit like it it shouldn't be true and i think that part of it is that monetization especially is this kind of taboo subject of you know and roguelikes have a history of being open source and so it's very difficult to approach the topic of you know if you want to make a living doing this so you can spend more time doing it then you need a way to support yourself and how do you do that in a way that's sustainable and that your players are okay with it's it's a bold thing to talk about because i think a lot of people instantly have very strong feelings and i think part of the kind of stigma around mobile has to do with like the way that it can be monetized. And so, yeah, I think it was wonderful to have that representation. I honestly didn't have much awareness at all about mobile roguelikes until um, like Kawa, one of the other volunteers is actually like a fan of Shattered Pixel Engine and had recommended it to me. Um, and so I'd started playing that. And yeah, it was this whole ecosystem of roguelikes that I had no idea about. So it was really great to get that actually represented at the conference. Yeah, there were so many nuggets of wisdom in that talk, it seemed. Uh, I feel like roguelike developers, especially if you have ambitions um, to go like commercial at some point, um, there's a lot of value in that talk and it's well worth uh, listening to and watching because um, just between his experience with all the monetization and how managing a community goes. And um, I just thought the whole history of Shattered Pixel Dungeon was really cool as well. Um, just because I don't, I don't see people talk about it too much. And I think that's probably because it has such a big community on its own that a lot of people talking about it are like just talking about it with other players, like, or on their own subreddit or whatever. I mean, I think that's because it's mobile. A lot of mobile games and like, non-mobile games, for lack of a better way to describe it, have essentially split ecosystems. Like, um, like Alexi was saying, like, even, uh, like, the discourse doesn't match over. You're not, you don't hear people, like, in normal development, game development, being like, this mobile game did this, we should take a lot of lessons for it. It's partially, I think, a bit cultural, and partially also just, like, the the mobile audience has a lot of different audiences like um the sorry the user base is like different in a way that means like whether intentionally or unintentionally there's not a lot of discourse crossing over i feel yeah well i think that there's this you know quote unquote casual gamer which is a again like so many terms around mobile gaming are so loaded i think in in discussion but i think that like there's something to the idea that there is a difference between people who 
you know, and it, it's funny in this case because roguelikes tend to not require a particularly beefy setup unless you're playing Dwarf Fortress. But, you know, there are people who don't have a dedicated PC or, or you know, computer to play their games. They don't have any consoles. They don't necessarily have a part of their time of the day that they sit down to just play video games or then go so far as to, like, join subreddits and go join discords and talk about it. Like, some people enjoy games, but it's not as much of a, you know definitive part of their identity almost and that audience is often completely overlooked but is often larger than the audience of people who are you know quote-unquote hardcore about it and, and yeah it's like the proportion of people who will actually go to the effort to join a subreddit or a discord group to talk about something is such a small portion of really committed players and so i, I do think that there's this whole audience of people that have phones and like the act of playing games, but aren't necessarily going to be the type of person who has access to or particularly interest in, you know, going quote unquote deeper or more hardcore. And But like, it's an equally valid way to play an audience. And it's a whole set of interesting, different design problems where, you know, you want to be able to support short sessions of gameplay in a way that like, sometimes the reason why I won't play something like Slay the Spire, even if I'm feeling like it, is because I'm like, oh, a run's going to take me at least an hour, and I don't have that time. And I think that's even more often a, a consideration for mobile games. So yeah, it's it's fascinating that it is often a very split set of audience members. And I do wonder even just of like, how many people who are really into mobile come to Roguelike Celebration. But, you know, maybe if we get more people talking about mobile, then we can bridge the gap and kind of get those two groups talking to each other more often. Yeah, and um, Shattered Pixel Dungeon is actually coming to Steam soon-ish now, so it'll be interesting to see how that um, audience shifts with that release, I think. Yeah, and it fits so well because one of the things I also really love about Roguelike Celebration and that, you know, is purposeful and and also was true even before, you know, I joined was that it crosses these gaps that often exist and i don't know it feels like sometimes like roguelikes as a whole cross them but i feel like roguelike celebration in particular so you know like i work in a more triple a context in the game industry and you know the amount of triple a game developers who never play anything that would be more categorized as indie like they only play other triple a games and they only know about other triple a developers is bigger than you would think and so there's this lack of kind of cross-pollination of indie concepts to you know, AAA and, and sometimes vice versa. And similar with Academia, like, I feel like UC Santa Cruz should be like an unofficial sponsor of Roguelike Celebration with how many speakers we get that are from there, <laughs> bringing awesome stuff to the table. And, you know, how often does a you know professional game developer or an indie developer or a hobbyist know what the latest academic understanding of procedural generation techniques is. Like, I would say not very often, especially because those white papers are uh, hard to find and, and not very approachable to read. But at Roguelike Celebration, you'll see an academic give a approachable, you know, guide to one of the things that they've worked on. And I think that it's just awesome how many of these kind of cultural gaps we bridge at the conference and it's something that i love and i feel like is is so missing so mobile was just another one that we hadn't done yet and it was awesome to see us do it yeah i agree i I thought that talk was was very very worth the watch i enjoyed it quite a bit i say us like we did the work i mean it's all evan who actually gave the talk we just were like here please (laughs) (laughs) um alexi did you have a a pick you wanted to share 
Yeah, that actually might segue kind of nicely because I think it was really hard for me to pick talks, but I think the first one that came to mind for me without overthinking it too hard was uh, Jason Grimblatt's talk of Before You Fix a Leak, Ask If It's a Fountain. I love this one. Which was kind of a celebration, yeah, bugs and what they are. And so kind of the, I guess, short description of it, if people haven't watched it, which they should, is that it was kind of digging into why we really like some bugs that we encounter in games and why we find them compelling. And, you know, if you take the stance that they're compelling and sometimes we want to not fix them, you know, kind of why is that and how can we recontextualize what a bug is in a way that lets us understand why they're worth keeping. And so he talked about how like we have some context like speedrunners will take advantage of bugs but even then it's not being treated as like a good natural part of the game it's still being treated as kind of this secondary thing and he mostly got deep into this methodology called frame analysis which was the idea that as we experience the world as people we experience it through different frames which are kind of contexts to our interpretation and a really easy to understand example to me was he talked about tabletop role playing where you've got one context that is like you and your friends are sitting around a table just as friends you've also got the context of the rules of the game that you're playing and kind of what that allows and doesn't allow and then you've got the context of like in-game role playing and storytelling so you can smoothly move between them where when you're like oh you know why did you attack that dragon someone might give an answer of like oh because you know they're weak to ice and i have an ice weapon which is kind of in that like game context or it might be like well because that dragon killed my parents and it's like oh you're in the storytelling context or it's like i just wanted to have fun tonight and it seemed like fighting a dragon would be fun which is kind of in that we're a bunch of friends having fun tonight context and so all of these exist at once and you kind of move between them and then when you apply that onto games where there's a similar, like, I am both a person sitting at my desk playing a game, I am also engaging with the rules of this system, and I am also, like, in a storytelling context, which Jason is one of the developers of Caves of Cut, which has a stronger kind of storytelling context than I think a lot of roguelikes have. And so when we think about a bug, we can think about, in all of those different contexts, in which one of them does it disrupt the experience and in which other context might it actually make sense, in which case you might be able to justify like, yes, this breaks the kind of illusion of the storytelling context, but from a player at the keyboard context, it actually is beneficial, which helps you argue for why it'd be a good thing to keep. So an example of that that I liked, which was one of the first ones he went into, is that in Capes of Cud, it's possible with your character build to start out already over-encumbered. And from a storytelling perspective, this doesn't make sense of like, how would you have gotten here if you couldn't move? From a gameplay perspective, it's not great because you immediately have to do inventory management to be able to even move. But he likes it, and he talked about how part of the reason is that as someone, as a player, sitting down to play Caves of Cut, being like, what is this game like? That experience of like, oh, I found a, a set of character creation you know, settings that cause this kind of almost broken experience gives you the sense of like, wow, this simulation is so broad that it includes edge cases that the devs haven't even thought of or haven't even you know fixed. And how that is a good thing of this idea of the simulation is capable of more than the devs can imagine, which I really liked. He turned around the net hack phrase of the dev team thinks of everything into the dev team doesn't think of everything. And as someone who's a big net hack fan, I thought it was really interesting that I 
often love that NetHack phrase, but I, I saw his point that there is something compelling to a simulation when you are able to feel like you've broken it. Like it can bring you into the game even more because you're like, wow, there's so much in this that I could make this happen. So like, what else could I do? So I, I thought that was really compelling. Yeah, I enjoyed that talk a lot. Uh, I thought that reversal of that dev team thinks of everything phrase uh, was pretty interesting to think about um, in the same way that you just described. And um, I, I had, re- I've been going back through some of these talks this week, um, just, you know, watching them again. And uh, when I was watching this one again, uh, one of the quotes that he shared really stuck out to me. And it was, um, from a book on metagaming and video games from Stephanie Bollock and Patrick Lemieux. And the quote was, despite their colloquial designation and sale as games, video games do not have rules. Rules are voluntary constraints and social contracts. They are packs between players not to peek or move outside invisible boundaries. Mechanics, on the other hand, are ontological operations. Players have no choice but to work within the limitation of these involuntary systems. And that's something that I think about a lot um as when i play these games especially because like roguelike games you you replay them a lot and you might play them for hundreds of hours and with every um time you play your experience broadens and you understand the the quote-unquote rules of the game a little more but you know based on this quote they're not actually rules they're just the you know the constraints defined by the mechanics of the game and you know how the game is programmed and yeah go ahead well, I mean, I think that part of the fun and part of the point of the talk is that the intersection between, or when you when you start the game, you have a conception of what the rules are, but um, the mechanics might say differently. So, like, when you do, for a speedrun example, like, when you clip into a rock on a horse and launch yourself across the world at 500 miles per hour in Skyrim, like... The rule is you're not supposed to do that, but the mechanics let you, and that's like where the bug comes in, and that's kind of why it's hilarious. Yeah, and finding that boundary and playing within it or outside of it, and like the player understands this distinction pretty readily, um, but it, it can be a lot of fun to break that, or um, some players might think it's not proper and they want to play within the quote-unquote rules of the game, um, and it's just a really interesting space to 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 be to explore as a player i think yeah and yeah the the speed running um comp was really interesting too because that community for a lot of games is just kind of built around glitches and you know whatever you can do to um you know get through the game faster but there's also like glitchless speed runs or there are certain games where the community might define their own rules for how a speed run can be played and what you have to do for it to be a proper speed run. So that's a, a case of the community actually applying their own rules on top of both the, you know, the mechanics of the game or any like, um, you know, perceived like intended rules within the game. They're actually defining their own set of rules even on top of that, which is really interesting. Right. Like a Nuzlocke Pokemon run of like, here's a whole list of extra rules you have to follow on top of it. Mm hmm. And another one of the big distinctions there um, that I thought was pretty interesting was um, he, he was mentioning tabletop and board games, and you had kind of mentioned these a little bit as well. But like when things don't make sense, like if you roll a dice and the output just makes no sense, the rules can be adjusted through player intervention, you know, just to, 
to improve that gameplay experience or the session or just to make sense of what the game is telling you is happening that's not really possible in a video game like what what's going on is just what it is unless you're you're going to go and modify the code yourself afterwards um it things just happen as a result of your inputs um so it's it's a pretty interesting distinction there to look at yeah and i also really liked so you know this fit into one of the categories of talks that I really enjoy, which is even though, you know, Jason is a game developer, you know, he made Caves of Cud and all these things, he wasn't really giving this talk as, you know, Caves of Cud developer, Jason Grimblot. It was like, you know, the fact he was a developer gave him some behind the scenes insight, but really he was talking more as just kind of like a member of this community and an enthusiast. And I liked how he had gathered stories from the community on Twitter of you know, favorite kind of systemic bugs that people had run into. And he talked about the famous uh, cats looking up alcohol bug from Dwarf Fortress, which is my favorite. And I do think about often if I'm trying to explain to someone who doesn't really know much about it what Dwarf Fortress is, I'll actually use that bug as like the case in point instead of something that's been fixed, which is interesting to wonder of like, why is it that the first thing I want to talk about is a bug? What does that mean? And I liked that Jason was doing this thing that we sometimes get at Roguelike Celebration of kind of noticing a pattern in the community of like how we talk about bugs, how we feel about them, and taking the time to dig into it and find a framework to help understand you know, what we're doing there and why and, and how to kind of rationalize it, which I really appreciate. It, it feels similar to sometimes it's even, you know, when I did my Proc Gen Practitioners talk, it was also about trying to like talk about the community through observation. And I think too about, you know, people like Kawa have done talks about death in roguelikes, which is the same kind of survey the community, survey something about it and kind of compile it into um, a pattern that can be talked about and, and understood, which I find really useful because it makes you both aware of like, huh, that is a thing that I do. And that is maybe why I do it. And then even if day to day, I'm probably not going to go to work and talk about frame analysis and, you know, ontological possibilities, that knowledge is going to help inform what previously were kind of gut feelings about like, well, when is a bug good? And when is a bug bad from a like fixing standpoint? It's really useful to have that background and to have someone take the time to really explain it, even if, you know, day to day, that's not like exactly the way I'm going to be working with it. Yeah. And, and I agree with that fully because I think he put a lot of ideas into words that things that I, I know and intuit, but never really, you know, may have been able to explain um, and to have him do that for me just gives me a new way to look at these things and to think about them, which is really important. And yeah, all the all the bug stories were they're always so much fun. So that was a really fun part about this too. Um, he he had a a Twitter thread that he started leading up to this, and people shared like all kinds of different um, bug stories. And I think bugs in video games a lot of times and especially in a lot of roguelike games kind of become part of like the lore and history of these games um, on the NetHack Wikipedia. There's a, a whole page of like historic bugs that have happened and like a lot of them are just funny and I, I don't know what it is about them, but um, players just love talking about them. And um, I know I definitely do. And there's, there's always, you know, they're funny <laughs> to see things that aren't intended and like all these indirect consequences and, um, yeah, they're a lot of fun to look at and examine. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I guess I'll bring up another talk um, that I really liked. Yeah, please do, because it's also like it was a contender for my favorite talk. Yeah, this is uh, Building an Economic Flesh Simulation Will Make You Disassociate from Reality from Zlavier Nelson Jr. Um, and yeah, that's quite a title. And honestly, this one's like hard to talk about. I thought th there's so many interesting topics in here. Um, I was just going to pull a quote from his own description um, of the game, and maybe we can start from there. So he says... I'm making a game called Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator about buying and selling the fleshy meat parts of sentient beings in a strange and evolving universe. This required making an intergalactic stock market, which required defining the value of a given organ, which required defining a list of organs, which required defining what is and is not an organ in the first place, and so on in an endless line. The process broke our team. Not in terms of crunch or mental health, but in the realization that so many of the systems and definitions used in every aspect of our reality are invented. They're false. They're arbitrary decisions from someone else we'd never meet. And I don't know what to expect from this talk based on the title, but it really perked my ears off up and drew me into it. And so... Um, one of the big quotes that I heard from him that stuck out to me was when, so when they were trying to decide like what an organ was for the uh, reason of, you know, including it into this simulation of a, a market for organs in this game was he said that decision process was in fact an arbitrary decision point on our part that meant everything. And as much as it's based on our flawed, limited perspective would be seen as an objective truth into the reality of our game, which it's a lot of weight to put on someone who's dealing with organs and, you know, he's not a doctor or like, he doesn't like, you know, there's just a lot of decisions and things that someone that just wants to make a game kind of expresses through the creation of that game. And so what seemed to start as him wanting to create a simulation, just a market simulation and just have fun with it and make it about these organs just brought up like all these like pretty deep questions. And I think the big like takeaway for me on it was when you're looking at art, whether it's movies or literature or music or poetry, um, it's often making a commentary about our world or like a statement about things. And, you know, people can interpret that. But when you're making like a video game, which can be interpreted the same way as other art, especially if your game has heavy, like immersive and simulative elements or procedural generation, um, the the statement that you end up making can be very unpredictable because you put in an input and then it goes through a lot of iterations and then you get that output. So the commentary that you're making on um, often our world um, could be unintended um, or there can even be typos or bugs in the game that end up making a statement that you may not have intended. And so this whole talk was kind of about those indirect consequences. And I thought that was was really powerful and interesting. Yeah, and I, I liked too about the responsibility angle of like you can't you can't just opt out of like being aware of or caring about, you know, like the statements that your game is making. And also that like mechanics are themselves like when you assign values to things and when you support certain types of gameplay and not others, like you are making kind of statements about that, yeah, like you are projecting a decision that becomes kind of the objective truth of that world and you know, can be a big deal. And he gave some some strong examples of stuff like RimWorld and how, you know, by setting up a kind of player's or character, like sexuality and attraction, there's a bunch of things in there about like 
what types of characters can have what orientations and not and stuff like finding any character that's been disabled automatically unattractive of like, huh, you made that as a mechanical decision, but like you are bringing in some like concepts from the world. And even if you weren't meaning it as a social commentary, like you are at least kind of perpetuating certain ideas, even if you're not aware of it. And I, I think a lot about how even like I've been playing the new Animal Crossing update, obviously, and I love Animal Crossing a lot, but one of the things about like the newest version, New Horizons, that I think is a shame is that the way that mechanically the like islands you can visit work, so you can go to these like procedurally generated islands, and really the purpose of them is that they're an island that's not yours and will never, you know, you don't need to care about it in the future, which means you can strip it of all resources. You can chop down every single tree and you can break every single rock and you can turn it into a devastated wasteland. And that's kind of the point of it. Like the reason to go to those islands is because you don't want to devastate your own island because you live there, but here's one that you're free to like guilt-free go and ruin. And I don't feel like I like what that kind of, you know, makes me feel like and what that kind of suggests about the right way to act or like it it just it feels uncomfortable in a way that like I don't think they intend it as any kind of social commentary, but because that's what the mechanics have you do. There is this idea of like, yeah, so if land is uninhabited, that means that you should strip it for all resources, which I don't think I agree with, even if that is often, you know, I think taken to be truth by a lot of people. So I really like that because I do sometimes run into, you know, with, with other game developers, this feeling of like, ah, oh, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not in this to make some kind of social commentary. I'm just making a game. And it's like, yeah, but when you, you know, the sign decisions that you make do have an, an impact. And I also felt like it was a really nice pairing to, from last year, Tanya X Short gave a talk about kind of culture and studio culture through the lens of system design, which was kind of this awareness that even in, you know, the real world, we exist inside of complex systems that decide, you know, worth and, and how things function. And we're influenced by them, even if we're not aware of it and taking the time to kind of consider the systems that you are existing in and what their implications are is you know, really valuable. And I think that's similar here in that part of what Xavier's team experienced that broke their brains <laughs> was that it wasn't just the systems in their game. It's that once they started thinking about ideas about like, you know, are organs from healthier people worth more than organs from unhealthy people? It was easy to see the parallel to reality and be like, wait a minute, you know, the way our actual healthcare system works is a bunch of arbitrary decisions. Oh, no. Or like, oh, the way the stock market works is actually a set of, like, arbitrary decisions. Oh, no. Like, you work backwards and, you know, it gave them that somewhat frightening awareness of how much of our reality is based on pretty arbitrary systems. Yeah, and I really like that um, that Animal Crossing example you had there is a really wonderful one because I could see... They were probably like trying to solve a problem <laughs> and just made a very pragmatic decision to ha let players like enjoy the game. But you're right. That ended up being a, a really a, like a, a kind of a statement or, you know, as you're playing through it, um, it, it can just feel wrong. And, you know, maybe you can you can change that by maybe adding a some kind of consequence to that, which maybe would 
undo whatever the intention of adding that feature there to begin with. But but things like that, I think, are easy to overlook when you are making some of these decisions. Um, you're just trying to find out what makes the game playable and fun and enjoyable. And it's pretty easy to overlook some of these other commentaries or how cer- certain people might perceive these games. And, and you know, people might will take away from these games and it can change people's world's views and you have to there is a bit of a responsibility there for the people that make these games yeah i highly highly recommend um people check out that that video or that talk it was a really good one yeah and and i like that i think you know zelver was really up front in the end and this came up a bit in the speaker breakout room after of you know it's not to say that you can't you know do what animal crossing did like you know and probably the amount of actual real world harm being done by Animal Crossing's mechanic is pretty minimal. But the important thing I think he was hitting home is just like the importance of being aware of it and kind of owning that responsibility of it doesn't mean that you're going to make a perfect system. Like probably it's actually going to be somewhat unavoidable that things will shake out of your simulation in particular that you weren't expecting. But the important thing is just being aware that like that is a part of what your job is and the responsibility and that you have to own that even if you know your answer might be yeah that's not ideal i don't like it but it's the solution we had or you know like he wasn't saying like you have to make games a certain way it was just about understanding like this is what you are doing when you are making games and you should be aware of that as you do it to what extent do you think that people draw out that uh, implied worldview from games a little, a lot, or is it... I mean, that's a... Yeah, yeah. to what extent, really? It's an interesting question. I find it it interesting because, like, a lot of games aren't... uh, So... What I'm about, basically Minecraft's um, Minecraft philosophy towards quote unquote empty land use is a, the impact of that is very different from like if any random person makes a game, but that's only because Minecraft is popular and their game is not. Yeah, I think the the extent to which games are shaping people's worldviews is probably pretty limited overall. Um, I People kind of understand that they're playing a game and um, those boundaries, but I thought he actually had a, an interesting example about um, like war games like Call of Duty and how people play these growing up and they get this perception of certain guns, weapons in these games being powerful. And then as adults, they... Um, they like purchase these weapons because they, you know, it, their worldview has been actually based on using these in these games. Um, and they think this is the right choice for them to protect themselves or whatnot. Um, you can probably actually, you 100% can draw that to kind of like, um, you know, glorifying like the military and such in those same kinds of games. So I, I, I think in some areas, um, people definitely, can like have their like worldview shaped and um, from from games like this. In other cases, maybe not so much. So it, I think, like Alexi said, it's really just to be aware that you might be, um, you know, making a statement in a certain way, or people might take it in a certain way when you're making certain decisions. And 
Um, it's just good to have that awareness. Yeah, and I think because it's more subtle. Like I don't think because it's, I don't think that it's like you know, someone has a completely neutral feeling about you know guns and the military, and then sits down, plays some Call of Duty, and is like, yeah, I love this now. Like I, I don't think that it's that um, large a thing. Like I don't think that there's as much that games would be like the single thing that changes someone's worldview. I think it's just this kind of insidious constant thing of like you know and and it does remind me like max kraminski they've often come and talk about the idea of gardening games and specifically talk about animal crossing of like there is this kind of common way that games behave in that you go to places with resources and you take all of them and then the game gives you a new place to take more stuff and that is just like taken for granted as how often games work like resources are there so you can take them and you don't think about it but i do think that there's something to the idea that that kind of just enforces an already existing understanding of like, you know, what's the point of the natural world? Like what's the point of resources that probably deserves a bit more questioning than that, but just kind of feeds into it. And and yeah, it's true. stuff like, yeah, like I've been when I was a teenager to a shooting range and like the guns I picked out to try and shoot because it seemed cool were guns I knew from games. And then it was like over time I was like, you know, I don't know if I like that I've ended up with this. Like maybe I should, you know, once I thought about it more critically, I didn't actually like that and I found the actual experience of doing it more unsettling but I'd gone into it with like a pretty gung-ho like yeah I know how this works and you know it's kind of cool to shoot a gun I've shot in a bunch of games but I also think the other side of it is something else that like Xavier talked on which I actually found really compelling because he talked about um, Elder Scrolls Oblivion which is one of my favorite games and I had never noticed or thought about this because like I'm white and he pointed out that the kind of darker skinned um, human race in Oblivion is described as being brutish and tough and having a lower or, or a higher pain tolerance and like the skills that they are good at are all like blunt force fighty skills which is very playing into like stereotypes about you know African-American people and for him as someone who who is African-American and also likes playing more thiefy subtle characters which are the types of characters i like to play too that was you know kind of upsetting for him he had to choose between playing as a character that looked like him or playing as a character that could actually do the things that he wanted to be able to do in the game and and there was even weird stuff of like imperials like the main white human race start out with a negative disposition towards red guards the people of color which like wow i never knew that that's messed up and I, I think that it's like, it's not that the Oblivion team, I would guess, were trying to make a particular social commentary. They were probably just going with, like, basically stereotypes that were a given. And so they were just kind of repeating them without thinking about it too hard. But, like, that does have the potential to hurt specifically, like, more marginalized part of your player base, right? And that's the other side of it. Of Even if it's not like people are going to become more racist necessarily because they played Oblivion by having those kind of implicit things in your systems, people who are impacted by it in the real world, I think are better at noticing it, right? In the way that like, you know, I will, it's gotten better in recent years, which is nice, but like the depiction of female characters in games was something that I would certainly be a lot more sensitive to. And like Mountain Blade's one of my favorite games and in the old versions, you know, their choices around what they considered historical realism meant that I definitely had to choose between playing the game as a woman like a character that looked like me or you know having a different experience which they've made better in the newer games and is appreciated 
by me. So I think that's the other side of it, that it's not just about how you're impacting the general worldview, it's how you're impacting specific players who um, have a more personal relationship to those systems in the real world. Right. And yeah, I was going to mention um, kind of uh, like the portrayal of like women and females in video games. There was actually a, a NetHack variant recently that had given them like lesser physical stats. Oof. And uh, that like really, I wouldn't say like hurt people, but like, you know, that doesn't feel great if you want to play a character that, you know, feel like feels like represents you or, you know, looks like you or you identify with and you can't you know, achieve the same thing as the, the male character or whatever. Um, and, and yeah, that, that was, you know, it just doesn't feel right to, to have these decisions, especially in, in games, you know? Yeah. Or at least, and I think that's part of like, I know, I think it came up in the public Q and a about, because there are games that'll make the argument of like, well, you know, I'm depicting historical reality or, you know, stuff like that. And I think, you know, Xavier's point is like, you, you can make that call. Like that is, you're right, but, you know, own it and don't don't try and say that, like, well, you know, that's just how it is. So I'm not making a decision. It's like, no, like you are deciding what to carry across into your game. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, I, I don't think that you can absolve yourself of any kind of conversation around that by just saying, like, well, I'm just replicating reality, because I think that was his other point was that reality itself is stranger and more uh, um, arbitrary than we might think and and we might have our own misconceptions right of thinking that things are truer than they are of thinking that something like the stock market makes sense and finding out oh no it doesn't or thinking that you know yeah that like oh of course like women will automatically be weaker right it's like well it's not quite as true as as you might just take for granted and I thought that stock market example that he had in the talk was really good about trying to make a stock market that had like sensible rules and constraints to it actually made it less realistic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, like I said, highly recommend that that talk. Um, it was really good stuff. Uh, we'll probably want to start wrapping up here. I don't know if we want to do kind of like a like a rapid fire, just mention a few more um, talks that we would recommend people um, to, to check out. Any favorites? I think we could do that, like a rapid fire of just a few others. I think so. And so I'll just kick that off. Like some other top ones I'd recommend. There was a talk from um, Cyber on sports, sports and statistics, why data accessibility matters in Blaseball and beyond. I would recommend people check it out, even if I know Blaseball has a like fair earned reputation of being inaccessible, but it is like not a talk just about Blaseball. I think it's a really good talk about how players can get stories out of simulation games and like a new angle on it of how the way that you make data accessible makes it easier or harder for people to find the compelling stories in the simulation that you're making. Um, also, one of the lightning talks I loved best was the Pokemon glitch talk uh, from Jonas. Oh, and, I love that one. Oh, it was so cool. Like you kind of don't need to know much going into it. And that's what we love when we pick our lightning talks. They're really fun to, do the talk selection for in the sense that because they're short anyway, you know, you can have a talk concept that you're like, I don't know exactly what this is going to be. That seems compelling. At worst, it's 15 minutes. Just go for it. And I love that because we get really interesting stuff. So I got actual chills with like his story of that game. It's very cool. It's about like mutating source code. So I think that uh, those are two that I would definitely point out as like, make sure to check those out as well. 
Um, I think mine are less, the talks that I liked are less ones that I would recommend to everybody else and more ones that I found interesting. Um, I really like the Why Noida Became a Roguelike, Why I Like That Not A Lot talk by, uh, R.V. Takari. Um, that one is about Noida, as the title says, and it's about all of the different things they tried before they settled on its current iteration, um, and how they, it basically, they had a really cool physics engine, or a pixel physics engine, and they were like, what can, what can we do with this? And it goes from, like, open world to RTS, and it bounces around a bunch between different, uh, different genres before they settle on roguelite. And you can see examples of that by, like, the actual open world that's left in the game. Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah, and that that was basically just very interesting as a talk. And I think the breakout rooms worked really well because you could, like, when he was in the breakout room, he was talking about a bunch of other stuff and, like, Cortex Command, for example, which was an early RTS similar to it, and how, like... You could probably actually make a workable game out of most of the different things they tried. They were just, like, working on it forever, and they were like, we need to... We are all tired of this, and we need to actually ship product. Like, we have been spending a lot of time on this, and we need to make it. Which happens so much more often than anyone thinks. Like, it's such a good, honest talk, because it's like, yeah, that's actual game development half the time, and you don't know because you just see the finished thing. Yeah, like that, yeah, that's just like the end state of shipping a game is like, we ran out of effort and or money. Um, but that was a lot of fun. I also just like the Chronicles of Stampedia talk because um, it's a uh, Chronicles of Stampedia by Francesco Catone. It's a talk about basically a minimal paper-based roguelike game. Um, and sort of how it is about the game itself and how it is about, like, a quick overview of the history of game books, kind of. Um, and that was fun because game books are interesting, even if I don't really play them much. Um, but that also ties into interactive fiction, which I like a lot. So I think that having a bunch of, you know, a broad net is one of the things that I like about Roguelike Celebration. Yeah, I liked all the examples he shared about where he drew inspiration about different specific things that he brought into his game from all these other board games or tabletop games or game books. Yeah, it was a whole other genre that I knew nothing about. Like, I, I was loving that because I was like, I didn't know you could do any of this and that there was a whole history of it. Mm -hmm. And like hiding information like from the player when they're the ones like <laughs> like writing it down was, was was really funny to think about. That was the coolest one to me. Yeah, the idea that you could actually have the player keeping track of their own game state and yet be hiding information from them. It was, yeah, great talk. One more that I'll uh, mention was I like the Lost Roguelikes talk from John Harris. Um, and basically he went through all these... Um, very early roguelikes, um, often stemming directly from Rogue. Uh, there was Advanced Rogue 5, Advanced Rogue 7, Super Rogue, Ultra Rogue, X Rogue, Larn. Um, and he kind of, he, he played them a lot. He got them all working. Um, he actually found and fixed some bugs in some of them and 
did other things to, like actually get them working but um it, it was it's really cool like seeing some of these really early ideas and how some of these very early roguelike games diverged and um he actually did some some gameplay example of from larn which is cool to just like just watch one of these games played and it actually made me pretty interested to like try some of these older games because i always love the the history and some of these checking out some of these older games yeah i feel like historical preservation almost is like one of the mandates of roguelike celebration like we try and always have some of that too because i think it's so important that there's games that are a big part of the history that you know would be forgotten or there's just more there than than people might be aware of so yeah, it was it was great to see a bunch of roguelikes covered that we hadn't really had people talk about before. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that that talk on that game Wilderness from last year. Yeah, which that was really cool. I, I did actually get that running and and played it and had a lot of fun with it. It was like a a roguelike kind of style game that predated Rogue itself, which is always really interesting. Yeah, which I mean, then if you want to, like, yeah. Uh, I could spend forever just recommending the roguelike talks until probably I had recommended every single one of them, which isn't very useful. But like the very end was Noah talking about the um, Ursula Le Guin book that had inspired Rogue, which is just like, okay, end on a bang of like, here's some previously unknown history of like where, you know, all roguelikes basically come from, which was just wild like it, it it felt very fun to have that as like breaking news from roguelike celebration new <laughs> new origin confirmed yeah and and on that note there there are so many so many good talks that we couldn't even get to today <laughs> uh we could really just talk about these for hours and hours and you know each one um was was very good so um if we didn't talk about something here it doesn't mean it's not worth checking out i would say if you have the time, like just scroll through the playlist and pick out the ones that are on topics that you're you're interested in. But also, like check out a few that that the topics don't um, catch your eye that much because you might you might be surprised. Um, I know I I always am every year, and there were so many good ones. I think I sent you guys an initial list of ones that I thought were like pretty good, and it was like at least two thirds of the talks. So I had to whittle it down to just a, a couple to maybe bring up here today. Um, but yeah, there's so many good talks. So um, everything's up on YouTube now. They're all edited down. And um, there's a, a playlist on the Roguelike Celebration YouTube channel just for the Roguelike Celebration 2021. So you can go through there and browse them and check them out. Yeah. And we also have the previous years. We actually finally we rescued the 2016 talks that were on a different Roguelike uh, YouTube account. And so now those are there too. And, and they're worth scrolling through. The other thing you can sometimes do if you... Um, or trying to look at interesting talks and maybe the YouTube format isn't working. One of the things I'll do is if you go to the roguelike.club website for the conference, you can look at previous year schedules and then you can still access like the bios for um, the speakers and things like that. So that can also be nice of like, maybe it works better for you to look at the schedule and then be like, Oh, that looks interesting though. You know, the descriptions on the YouTube channel have that information as well. But yeah, I, I think that they're just like, you know, lightning talks are super short and like bite-sized and even the full talks are only a half hour. So yeah, there, there's so much good stuff. And I totally agree that one side of it is picking out the topics that you really like, but then I'm always appreciative of the fact that every year I get exposed to something that I didn't particularly know I would care that much about. And then I'm like, no, actually, this is extremely fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, for me last year, because I, I come to roguelikes as 
really mostly just a player perspective and I don't really have much programming experience or anything like that. But last year I got fascinated by all of the um, like level generation talks. Um, and it was, it's actually pretty interesting because as a player, I recognize which like methods a lot of these games use and stuff. So I thought that was really cool. And that wasn't really something I, I would have expected to, um, you know, find so engaging to watch um, beforehand, but I really enjoyed stuff like that. So, you know, you might be surprised. Um, all right, I guess we'll uh, start wrapping up here then. Um, do you guys have any um, I don't know, anything you guys want to plug, any contact information, anything you guys want to share with anyone, any final words? This is your time. I guess I'll do my standard plug. Uh, if, if you want to chat about anything, you can find me on Twitter at ampeppers, um, and that's a good time. And yeah, I, I'm really glad um, that people are interested in Roguelike Celebration. You can get in touch with us that way. I'll, I'll also randomly plug like, hey, if you like podcasts, I'm on a D&D podcast set in Spelljammer. It's it's a lot of fun. It's called Gem Jammer. So, hey, if you like tabletop and you like, uh, you know, weird settings, check that out. But mostly awesome. just come to Roguelike Celebration. Yeah, I bet you there's some crossover for that here. So, <laughs> yeah. Can you um, mention the the contact for anyone that wants to get involved for volunteering or anything again? Yeah, that's contact at roguelike.club. Did I get that awesome. right? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then our, our website is just roguelike.club. And so that's where you can keep an eye on, you know, news for next year's event. And you can subscribe to a mailing list if you want to get emails when we're deciding things and all that fun stuff. Cool. And I'll include all these links in the show notes as well. Uh, you got anything, Travis? Um, no, I don't really use Twitter and I don't tend to, uh, have much of a public online presence. Again, if you're interested in volunteering for Roguelike Celebration, drop us an email. If you're not and you haven't been to Roguelike Celebration, you should check it out. The one other thing I'll say is that if you're interested in speaking at Roguelike Celebration, you know, I mentioned that it's important to us. We love people who are you know professionals or not you know if you're just a well not just but like if you're a fan if you're an academic if you're a developer we love all that if you don't have a lot of speaking experience that's fine Uh, if you're an accomplished speaker awesome we kind of we want lots of different types of speakers and like i mentioned one of the things i do is speaker mentorship so if you are interested but don't really know what exactly to talk about or you're intimidated by turning your idea into a talk. I often take some time to help people put together a proposal or if their proposal is accepted, help them a little bit with um, turning that into a final talk. So best way to keep in touch on that front would be to um, subscribe to the mailing list so that then you'll get a notice when we open the call for papers for next year, which usually happens kind of in summer, I think probably around like June or so often, but yeah, that would be awesome. And then, like, you know, you can get in touch with me personally on Twitter if you have an idea and you just want to bounce it um, back and forth with someone. That's something that I really love to do because I, you know, I started speaking at the conference when I was still a university student. And honestly, my supervisor told me, you can't go talk there. The developers of Rogue are there. You don't belong there. And I, <laughs> and I submitted anyway. Uh, and I'm so glad that I did. And it, it really kicked off, you know, a lot of meaningful relationships and stuff in my life. So I, I care very deeply about helping other people have that experience. So consider it, even if you think your idea is maybe not interesting enough, there's no harm in submitting. The worst thing that'll happen is it will say, sorry, not this year. So, uh, yeah, 
keep that in mind because I would love, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have at least some thoughts about roguelikes and some of them would probably be interesting to the community. Another another thing I'd like to know is that one, we have very tenuous requirements for what counts as like connected to roguelikes. Also true. <laughs> so, and two, if you have something that's not strictly speaking a talk, we might still take it. Like we had a live speed run at one of the roguelike celebrations. We had a dance pad exhibition of rogue. Um, so, like, if it's just like even an act or a cool thing, we might even take it. Yep. So no arms have been in. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, other roguelike front, it is funny, like, you know, I think our favorite example we'd like to give is the year we had a biologist come talk about slime molds. Like, you know, <laughs> it, like we, we get all kinds of topics from all kinds of people. So anything that sounds interesting, send it our way and we're, we're happy to talk about it. And yeah, worst that happens is that we say that sounds really cool, but sorry, we can't, which, you know, is fine. Yeah, awesome. Um, and I am Tone. Um, you can find all my links on at tonehack.net, at the, the top bar there. I think that's a wrap for this episode. This was a lot of fun. Thank you guys so much for uh, joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. And um, thank everyone for listening, and I'll see you guys next time on Ascension Run. Bye.